An elderly retired man in Phoenix called his son in New York and said, I hate to ruin your day, but your mother and I are divorcing. 45 years of misery is enough. Pop, what are you talking about, the son says. The old man replied, we can't stand the sight of each other anymore. We're sick of each other, and I'm sick of talking about this, so you can call your sister in Chicago, and you can tell her this. Well, the son uh, is frantic, so he calls his sister, and she just explodes on the phone. She goes, like, heck, they're getting divorced. I'll take care of this. So she immediately calls Phoenix, talks to her dad, screams at him over the phone and says, you and mom are not getting a divorce. Don't do a single thing until I get there. I'm going to call my brother back. We'll be on the plane and be there tomorrow. Until then, don't you dare do a thing. The old man just calmly hangs the phone up and turns to his wife and says, okay, they're coming for Thanksgiving and paying their own fare. Now what do we do for Christmas? <laughs> you know, the Lord has called all of us as followers of Jesus to be involved in community, to be involved in our relationships with other people. We're brothers and sisters with one another because we have a common heavenly Father. But let's be candid. We need to admit that that community life is not always easy. It gets messy, doesn't it? It gets tricky. And there are times when even our best intentions somehow just seem to get hijacked and just skewed in a way we never intended. I mean, who here does not want to be loved by other people and to have the ability to express love back to other people, to be compassionate with them. We want to be sensitive to their needs, and that means at times we really do want to serve and care for those that are right around us. But God, God, there are those times when our mouths or what comes out of our mouths offends other people. What we actually do hurts those that are closest to us, or then there are those times when we choose to stay silent or we choose not to do something And then that ends up just revealing to everybody around us how deeply rooted inside of us is this selfishness. (sighs) And the biggest danger that's so hard for us to admit, the biggest danger to living in community is us. I am the issue. Because at any given moment, I can choose whether or not I'm going to walk in the flesh or walk in the Spirit as it relates to my relationship with other people. That's a choice we're all making. And when we walk in the flesh, that's when we hurt each other. That's when tensions begin to rise. That's when animosity begins to grow. And because of the pain, what happens? We either want to run or we want to fight. We can end up like a group of porcupines on a cold night. You know how porcupines can be. Because of their need for warmth, they come together, but then their quills prick each other, so they move back away, but then their desire for warmth just repeats that crazy cycle all over again. So you know what we're going to do? This morning we're going to start, we're going to go on a journey together. But I would need to warn you up front, this journey may be uncomfortable for each of us at some points. For in the coming weeks, we are going to explore five different 
passages of Scripture in the New Testament that speak directly to those times when our divergent opinions create arguments, and then those arguments lead us to believe that we've got irreconcilable differences, and because of those irreconcilable differences, then that results in words or actions that end up hurting each other. And the reality is we feel torn about all of this. I mean, on the one hand, we hate conflict. We want to be liked. We want to get along with everybody else. I mean, there's a part, but, and so there's a part of us that we want to avoid conflict. We want to know how to resolve it and move towards reconciliation. We want to enjoy the warmth of the porcupine community. That's just a part of us. But then on the other hand, to wade in on this means opening doors and facing rooms of pain and confusion and self-doubt that we've experienced because of this kind of stuff in the past. I mean, who here has not been at one time or another almost overwhelmed by the tension and conflict with somebody else? And that memory, it's very real. We have felt the prick of other people's quilt. So on the one hand, we hate conflict, but we're also reluctant to go there and be hurt again because it means revisiting old wounds. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to lead us into this tender area. I'm not asking you to follow my lead. Folks, if you knew my story, you would know how much of my life I have been involved in conflict avoidance and I've stuffed a lot of pain over the years. But you know what? Recently, the Lord's been working on my heart. So what I want to do is I want us all together to go and explore in a fresh way the transforming truth of God's Word. If you have your Bibles with you, if you have your uh, uh, device ready, open, if you would, to John chapter 17 this morning. And as, we, as you head there, let me just kind of give you the big picture. Where are we headed? What's the plan? Well, in the coming weeks, what we're going to investigate is why resolving conflict is crucial. That's this morning. Then, secondly, we're going to add to that, where do 99.5% of our conflicts come from, really? And then third, how does grace, how does grace literally transform uh, when we get into these conflicts with others? We're also going to be to investigate how can we experience the uh, incredible freedom that forgiveness gives us, and then how then do we take that and how to give that incredible gift of forgiveness to somebody else. So this morning, what I'd like to do is begin with what is the key motivation for reconciliation, working through all of these things. And I think we need to begin by recognizing that when we have a tension, when we have a conflict from some, with somebody else, our focus starts to narrow down. Um, our field of vision starts to become quite constricted down to just our little story of what's going on around us. And yet the Scriptures invite us to have this larger story view. And the theme verse for this whole series together is found in Psalm 133, verse 1, that says how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. There's the big story that's going on. Look at a couple key words in there. First of all, look at that word good. That's the exact same word 
that God uses in Genesis chapter 1 at the end of each day of creation, after all that he accomplished, he declares, this is good. So that word carries the concept of being superior in quality or value. In other words, it's the best you can get. Now look at the second word, pleasant. Pleasant is a label for those things that are delightful, they're lovely, they're sweet. It's pointing to something that is experientially enjoyable. So put those two words together with the, with the concept of unity. And here you get to see the big picture as it starts to come into view. When God's people live together in unity, that is both the best quality of life and the most pleasurable experience that we can have. Nothing, absolutely nothing beats living in harmony with other people. We'll not only sleep better at night, but we'll wake up in the morning and be more eager to run into the day. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to talk to us about this morning. So if you're there in John chapter 17, we're going to be looking at verses 20 to verses 23 this morning and allow Jesus to not only echo Psalm 133 of 1, but expand on it. And I want you to notice how in these short verses here, Jesus extends an invitation to us. And the invitation is this, don't settle for anything less than authentic unity. Look at these verses. Verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, he's talking about us. We are the ones who have believed through the word given to us that's come down through each of these generations from the apostles. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Isn't that interesting? This prayer reveals what's on Jesus' heart. In fact, you know that John 17 is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And here in these verses, he mentions that he doesn't want us to settle for living with broken or shattered relationships. He doesn't want his followers to live with tension or the alienation that comes from hurt feelings or, or cold indifference. Rather, we're to live in unity with each other. Okay, what does that mean? Well, notice that Jesus here in verse 21 defines unity for us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Did you notice that little phrase, just as, there in verse 21? The unity that we are to experience with each other is supposed to be just like that which Jesus experienced and is experiencing with God the Father now. And again, he, look at it, he uses these words. Just as you, Father, 
are in me and I in you. Ooh, Father, our Lord is describing a unity as the connection of an intimate relationship. And that connection is to be as fully integrated and embracing as that which Jesus the Son had and has with God the Father. Folks, that, the implications of that are just simply staggering. Unity is looking at another follower of Jesus Christ and not seeing you and me, but seeing there's a we here. We're related to each other as family. We're brothers and sisters. Why? Because we, not because we have uh, uniformity in appearance or, or taste or choice, but rather because who's our father? That's where our unity is. It's a relational closeness and commitment just like Jesus had with the Father in heaven. And that's what Jesus says. I don't want you to settle for anything less than a unity with other Christ followers just like the relationship I'm enjoying with God the Father. Wow. Go discuss that over lunch when we're done here. (laughs) So if that's what he wants for us, Uh, how do we get there? Well, notice, Jesus now explains how that kind of unity is developed, starting in verse 22. He says this, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Ooh, Become perfectly one. There's a becoming. Unity takes you on a journey. I like to say that unity or experiencing unity means going on a relational road trip that will change all of our relationships. So Jesus is praying here for the development of our unity with each other that will be based on the growth of our unity with Jesus and the Father. So let me show you my my little diagram here that I have. Um, And obviously, looking at it, you can tell I did not go to the Juilliard uh, Center for Graphic Arts. But you'll get the point here. The closer that any of us draws towards Jesus Christ as our Savior, the closer then that that draws us then to each other. In fact, you're, you are going to see, as I have seen, that any of the, at each week as we look at how the significant steps towards reconciliation, every single one of them is based on what God has done for us in Christ. Draw closer to Jesus Christ, and it will draw you closer in relationship with the other followers of Jesus. But our Savior has one other thing He wants us to know. This kind of incredible unity has a powerful impact that goes way beyond our small little story. Notice that Jesus also points out in these verses that the unity he's describing is a form of validation. Look at how verse 21 ends. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now look at verse 23, almost the same word, but a little bit different. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved 
me. So the world, those who do not share our commitment to Jesus Christ, they're watching us. They're listening, they're listening carefully to things we say. And so when we exhibit in our relationships with each other this kind of perfecting unity as we're moving in that direction that Jesus describes there in John 17, and they see it, it blows them away. Why? Because there is only one explanation for it, and that is the supernatural work of Jesus Christ in our lives. I mean, they realize out there in the world the differences of race, of income, of politics, and preferences, all those kinds of things, it polarizes us. It alienates us from one another. It, it has created the cancel culture that we're living in right now. It creates the angry expressions coming out of people where literally they take someone else's life. And it is only by the wonderful work of Jesus that His followers can live in a powerful sense of unity that's real and authentic, not made up, not just thin, but real, and that amazes the world. Sheldon Von Aachen wrote in his book, uh, the book is called A Severe Mercy, and he's often quoted, but I think it's worth repeating his quote when he makes this comment. He says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians when they're somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug in complacent consecration, when they're narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. We and the relationships that we have with one another are before a watching world. And when the world sees us growing in unity with each other, it is a validation of the claims of Jesus Christ. And that's a powerful part of our witness. In fact, it's interesting, uh, Emmanuel Sheward once said, to be a witness does not mean you're engaging in propaganda nor trying to stir people up, but simply living a mystery. It means we live in such a way that our life would not make sense if God did not exist. So take a step back for a moment. Can you imagine what this could mean? Can you imagine what the answer to Jesus' prayer here could do in a community of believers? Can you imagine what it might do for us here at Lakewood. Can you imagine a day when we can't wait to come and get together with one another because our harmony has created such a compelling environment where there is personal spiritual growth and, and, and unrestrained worship? Can you imagine a day where our love relationship with Jesus Christ then releases each one of us to love others and to allow others then to love us in return? Can you imagine here that there, is, that there will come a day when there is the absolute refusal to let our differences divide us? Could you imagine a day where expressions of affirmation and encouragement extinguish criticism and judgment in comparison? Can you imagine a day 
where the reputation of Jesus Christ means so much to us. In fact, it means more to us than protecting our own fragile egos or trying to keep them propped up. Can you imagine? See, that's the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for, that Jesus died for, and he wants us all to experience it. It's a unity of deeply connecting relationships. Not because our preferences always line up. Give that up. It's it's never going to (laughs) happen. But those connecting relationships are there because we're all, each one of us individually is grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ that authenticates to a watching world that everything Jesus did and everything Jesus said is real. Hmm. Imagine. But, but unfortunately, that relational road trip often hits major potholes. And just like when our literal car hits a deep pothole in the road at high speed, there are times when we hit potholes in our relationships, and it seems like our personal alignment is damaged. So to keep us from being surprised, to keep us from being naive about the development of unity among us, Jesus addresses that there is a challenge to our unity in relationships. Back to John 17. Did you notice the repetition of the little word, may? Verse 21, that they may all be one, that also they may be in us. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. In fact, five times this little word shows up in these very few verses. What it reminds us is that Jesus is passionately praying for us to live in a good in good and pleasant harmony with each other, but it may not happen. In other words, that little word may that constantly repeats itself is alerting us that the experience of unity is not guaranteed. It's conditional. Conditional on what? Our choices. What choices? Well, How I choose to respond when a conflict erupts, when an argument begins in my relationships, or those times when I'm tempted to press my preferences as the way it's got to be. What am I going to choose at that very moment? When a conflict arises, will I immediately, and when I face this choice, what am I going to do here? Will I choose to deal with this conflict in a biblical manner that effectively effectively keeps me and that other person on the journey towards unity or not. Those choices are what we're going to explore in the coming weeks. But let me just give you one this morning to chew on, kind of whet your appetite a little bit for these next few weeks together in this. And if you don't take any other notes, please write down these next four 
references that I'm going to give you because there are four powerful verses that I believe we ought to keep grouped together well. You'll see what I mean in just a second. The first one is Romans chapter 14 and verse 19. It says this, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Romans 14, 19. Now to that, add a second verse. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, where the writer to Hebrews says, make every effort to live in peace with all men. Third, write down Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 3, where Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then number four, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, Paul writes, Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. So you saw the, the emphasis I added in those verses that repeats, make every effort. Have we? Do we? I must confess that too many times to avoid the messiness of conflict, I did as little as possible and just tried to keep my head down, hoping that the whole thing would just blow over. And as I've mentioned, that's the times when I've hurt my wife, when I've hurt my kids, when I've hurt my friends. So instead of doing what the Scriptures and what Jesus is praying for here, where I let my gaze uh, uh, be focused on the bigger story of how good and pleasant it is to dwell in unity with others, my focus became so constricted down, and I tried to avoid pain. I tried to protect in some measure my fragile ego, and I refused to admit that I was probably part of the problem. Make every effort. Wow, that's a compelling invitation to really ask ourselves, how bad do I want it? I know that's bad English, but you get the point. How bad do I want it? Am I really going to leave a trail of broken relationships and behind me all my life? Am I just going to continue to live with that low-grade tension between me and that other person? And yeah, occasionally it spikes but it's always there. Or am I going to commit myself because of what Christ has done for me and because of what others will think of Him as they watch me, that I'm going to be remarkably different in the way I handle these tension times and how I work towards reconciliation? How bad do I want? Alvin Strait was 73, year old, was 73 years old when he heard a rumor that his brother, Lyle, who he had not seen in over 10 years, hadn't spoken to him in over 10 years, that Lyle had had a stroke. Alvin lived in Lawrence, Iowa, and Lyle, his brother, lived 500 miles away in Wisconsin. 
Now, because of his impaired vision, Alvin's driver's license had been taken away from him years ago. But he was determined. He was determined that he was going to go visit and f- or find his brother, visit him, and make things right. His only solution to getting this done was to hitch a makeshift trailer to the back of his 1966 John Deere riding lawnmower and drive there. True story. The trip took him more than six weeks. He camped out in fields and in the backyards of hospitable people that he met along the way. And on his very last night before finally being connected with his brother, he was camped out in a church cemetery where he had started a little fire to try to warm some food or some drink up. And he was there out between the tombstones. And the pastor of the church saw him through the window and thought, well, I need to help out this homeless guy. So he took him a hot plate of mashed potatoes and meatloaf. And a conversation began. A conversation began between Alvin and this pastor. And Alvin told him everything that had happened between the two brothers. And when the pastor said, well, why do you think it got to this point? These were Alvin's words. He said, the story, it's as old as Cain and Abel. Anger, vanity, add a little liquor into that mixture, and you've got two brothers who haven't spoken to each other in years. Whatever it was that made me and Lyle so mad, you know what? It doesn't matter anymore. I want to make peace. I want to sit on the front porch with him and look up at the stars like we used to. Six weeks. 500 miles. Riding a lawnmower. How bad do you want it? How far are you willing to go?